The Hamlet Podcast, Episode 4. Hello and welcome to this exploration of Shakespeare's King Lear, with me your host, Connor Hanrissey. Over the course of the last episode, we began to get a sense of Lear's youngest daughter, Cordelia. She's addressed us directly, worrying about what she's going to say in this contest for her father's affections. She might already have had an inkling that today might be decision day for choosing her potential husband. And now, instead, she's just listened to her two sisters make fabulous announcements of how much they love their father. And now, the spotlight is about to turn on her. Lear has just described the ample gift that will be bestowed on Regan, and naturally he'll be turning to Cordelia next. He says, Now, our joy, although the last, not least, to whose young love the vines of France and milk of Burgundy strive to be interest. What can you say to draw a third more opulent than your sisters? Speak. Lear seems excited to have reached Cordelia. He calls her our joy. So far he's called on Goneril, our eldest born, and then dearest Regan. But Cordelia is his joy. Although she is the youngest, she is not the least in his affections. Although the last, not least, is how the quarto puts it. But the folio says, although our last and least, as though acknowledging that she's the youngest and is unmarried. Even these four little words have big implications for status and affection. Could the quarto version, for example, infer that perhaps Goneril is his least favourite? That's a great argument for a production to explore in rehearsal. Lear describes Cordelia as one to whose young love the vines of France and milk of Burgundy strive to be interested. France is obviously one of the great winemaking areas of the world, then as now, but it's curious that Lear notes Burgundy for its milk. Nowadays, Burgundy is known for some of the best Chardonnay and Pinot Noir on earth, amid many other culinary delights. But this wine culture in Burgundy is significantly more recent. In Shakespeare's time, Burgundy might have been better known for its grazing, its cows, or indeed, its milk. Nowadays, the most famous recipe from the region combines both of these histories in that greatest of stews, beef bourguignon. Meanwhile, the Lords of France and Burgundy are here at court in the hope of marrying Cordelia. Both are striving to be interest, an archaic form of the verb that morphed over time to the version that we know, interest. Both of these men are suitors for this princess. But first, Lear wants an answer in his love contest. What can you say, he asks, to win yourself a third more opulent than your sister's? It certainly feels like Lear has stacked the deck. A third in this court is not an equal measure, so much as one of three portions decided in the moment by this king. Cordelia now has this big chance to say nice things and win a much more opulent segment of the map. If she says the right thing, she'll win big, and then they can move on to picking the best possible suitor for her, too. But this is a Shakespearean tragedy, and that's not how this is going to proceed. Instead, Cordelia says three little words that rip this story wide open. Her reply is, Nothing, my lord. 
the youngest person on stage, surrounded by a court of presumably mostly men, says the least appropriate thing possible. King Lear responds, and there's an incredible variety of ways he might do so, by repeating the word. Is he amused, surprised, intrigued, disturbed? All he says is nothing. And Cordelia stands firm. She says it again too. Nothing. There's definitely an edge seeping into Lear's voice as he now responds. Nothing will come of nothing. Speak again. We've heard the word five times now in quick succession. Nothing. There's a nihilism to it. Nothing can come of nothing is a proverbial phrase. It doesn't mean much of itself, but Lear is saying that if Cordelia doesn't play along, she'll be getting nothing. And now poor Cordelia, as she's already called herself, and as she appears very likely to remain, explains herself. Unhappy that I am, I cannot heave my heart into my mouth. I love your majesty according to my bond, no more nor less. Cordelia apologises, sorry that she's not the kind of person who can speak so artificially, heaving her heart into her mouth. The way she describes it makes it already sound like an unnatural thing, distorting the body and moving organs to the wrong place. Instead, she insists, she loves her father, his majesty, according to her bond, no more, no less. This bond is a tricky word, because it can have so many meanings. The paternal bond between father and daughter, the bond of family, her bond as his subject, since he's the king, and of course any number of implications like a bond of servitude, or debt, or honour. Cordelia is insisting that of course she loves him, he's her father, and everything associated with that bond, but without the kind of flattery and BS that her sisters have displayed. Lear really seems to want to give her one last chance, and seems to advise her now. He says, How, how, Cordelia, mend your speech a little, lest it may mar your fortunes. Mar and mend are a nice antithesis here. How, how sounds a little peculiar. Often in Shakespeare it's much more likely to hear how now as the start of an address like this. But how, how gives us just enough of Lear's confusion at his daughter's response. Mend your speech a little, he says. Just just say something. We're all here looking at you. Please don't make me lose face. It may mar your fortunes. If you don't play along, you can't win and might lose badly. So Cordelia lays out her case. Good my lord, you have begot me, bred me, loved me, I return those duties back as are right fit, obey you, love you, and most honour you. Why have my sisters husbands if they say they love you all? Happily, when I shall wed, that lord whose hand must take my plight shall carry half my love with him, half my care and duty. Sure, I shall never marry like my sisters to love my father all. Cordelia is so smart, she's so honest, and this is her downfall. It's almost wry and even funny that she mocks her sisters and this entire game by saying what she does. Her point is blunt and rational, but she entirely overlooks what she's supposed to be doing. 
Lear has probably set up this entire contest as a means to let Cordelia overstep any normal line of succession and for her to inherit a chunk that would not normally go to the youngest unmarried child. And now she's entirely missing the point and being upright, frank and honest. The timing couldn't be worse. She acknowledges that Lear has fathered her, raised her and loved her. And she thanks him for all these things with appropriate gratitude and love. As is right fit, she says. She obeys him, honours him dearly and most definitely loves him. But perhaps she's got her mind more focused on today being about her potential fiancé. She makes this rhetorical point before the whole court that she will also have to and want to love her husband. She asks why her sisters even have husbands if they're saying they love their father alone. Since she isn't even betrothed yet, she says happily, perhaps, or whenever, when she will get married, whatever lord takes her hand in marriage with her plight or pledge will take half her love with him. She rather reasonably hopes that half of her love will go to her husband, half her care and duty. It's a different kind of love, but since everything seems to be in a process of meeting out and dividing up today in this court, she explains how, of course, some of her love will go to her partner. Surely this is not unreasonable. She won't stop loving her father, but some of the love she has will be going elsewhere. To conclude... Cordelia scores another odd little point about her sisters, insisting that she would never want to have marriages like theirs. There must be no love lost between those couples if the girls are saying they love their father alone. And the play will have something to show us on this point. Cordelia is not stupid, but it's frustrating to see her get this so wrong. If only she just flatter him, it'd be okay. There'd be no play, mind you, but it'd be okay. But she's not prepared to indulge her father's crazy game. Or she's too infatuated with the idea of getting married. Or she dislikes her sister's protestations because she already knows Lear loves her most. They have this special bond, and that's the word she used, and he should know that it's important to her and doesn't need any fancy words to explain it. Lear, on the other hand, is looking very exposed after this brazen, if forthright, response. He has to ask, But goes thy heart with this? Do you really mean this? he's asking. That heart she'd already said she can't heave into her mouth. Cordelia says yes. I, good my lord. Lear wonders at this surprising response from the daughter he loves most. So young and so untender. Untender is a weird word. Most likely Shakespeare coined it for this scene. Cordelia seems to Lear to be harsh in her insistence that she won't flatter him. But she responds, echoing him even more earnestly. So young, my lord, and true. She knows she is right, in her way. That love, unlike a kingdom, cannot be measured and weighed out anyway. That it's madness to say she loves her father only, or to some fantastic extent. Of course, she wants to love her husband too. And so she's told the truth. A rare occurrence in this court full of flattery, perhaps. She's done only what she can do. But Lear is prone to immense anger, and it flashes fast and hot right now. He says, 
let it be so. Thy truth, then, be thy dower. For by the sacred radiance of the sun, the mysteries of Hecate and the night, by all the operation of the orbs from whom we do exist and cease to be, here I disclaim all my paternal care, propinquity and property of blood, and, as a stranger to my heart and me, hold thee from this forever. The barbarous Scythian, or he that makes his generation messes to gorge his appetite, shall to my bosom be as well neighboured, pitied and relieved as thou, my sometime daughter. We might have thought that Lear might just have given her a dull farm somewhere and left the rest to the more political older sisters. But no. We get the first of many outrageous oaths in the play. Lear tells Cordelia that her truth can be her dowry. She's getting nothing else. He swears by the light of the sun, in a nod to pagan sun worship, and also by the mysteries of Hecate, with whom we spent so much time in Macbeth. He swears by the night, and by all the operation of the orbs from whom we do exist and cease to be. Here, Lear seems to be acknowledging every possible influence, the sun, the moon, the stars, every astronomical and astrological operation that works on human life, and even ends it. It's a great many things to swear by, goodness, evil, light, heaven, the works. By all of them, he swears that henceforth he disclaims all paternal interest, all kinship, or propinquity, all blood ties, and more importantly, all right to inherit or succeed him. He's cutting off Cordelia in every possible way. From now on and forever after, he will consider Cordelia a stranger to his heart and to himself. The little phrase within all of this, from this, could mean his heart, his throne, his map, or even his crown. It's a nice little option available to the actor to choose. A production I really liked had Lear snatch a simple coronet from Cordelia's head from this, physically removing her own royalty from her in front of the whole court. Lear continues that Cordelia will be as close to him now as mythological barbarians and savages from far away, he lists the barbarous Scythian as an example. Scythia is an area near the Black Sea, then notorious for bloodthirsty and brutal peoples. Worse yet, Lear mentions cannibals, he that makes his generation messes to gorge his appetite. Not just any cannibal, but the kind that would turn his own offspring or generation into messes, minced meat, to sate his hunger. The kind of man who would eat his young. Meanwhile, Medea was from Colchis in Scythia and was likewise associated with killing her children. It's probably not an accident that the two awful examples Lear leaps on are far-off characters that might kill their offspring. His rage is appalling. He's saying that these fantastically awful figures will get as much love from him, shall to his bosom be as well neighboured, pitied or relieved as Cordelia now will. And to finish it off, he shows that she's not even his child anymore. He says, in conclusion, that she's his sometime daughter. It's already past tense. Although it's wild in its rage, the speech is clear and rhetorically precise. It's impressive that Lear is in enough control to end on such a master stroke. 
my sometime daughter. Now that Cordelia has awoken this dragon, we can expect plenty more fireworks as the play proceeds. How might the court react to this extreme response? I think we'll leave it here for now and save the next onslaught for another episode. Thank you for joining me, as always, and I'll speak to you next time.